the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushduni. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Calcedon Report number 62, October 1970. We have in the last two reports been analyzing the significance of an upper class and its decline and the growing victory of the lower class mentality. Our concern now as we study the lower class mind is to examine the popularity of two very different peoples, the American cowboy and the Polynesian. In America today, the cowboy is a popular television hero and a national symbol of sorts. The sheepherder, on the other hand, has no like prestige, nor does the former. We must remember, too, that the cowboy's prestige does not include the cattleman except to a minor degree. The cattleman, the ranch owner, is a responsible, independent man. The former, too, is a man who must exercise foresight, patience, and diligence to survive and prosper. The despised sheepherder is actually only a hired hand, like the cowboy, but with a difference. The sheepherder must live with the sheep in a sheep wagon, doctor and care for them, living alone continuously. He must thus be a responsible, patient, and future-oriented man. Significantly, few young Americans ever become sheepherders today. The pay is good, and after ten or more years of such work, a herder who has saved his money can go into some enterprise of his own. Few Americans are so future-oriented or patient. Most sheepherders must be imported. Basques, Greeks, and some Mexicans. After a period of time, these herders retire to their homeland as well-to-do citizens, or they go into ranching or business in America. Many of the most important citizens of the western intermountain areas of the U.S. are ex-sheepherders, or their sons. On the other hand, it is rarely ever the case that a cowboy saves up his money to go into his own enterprise. Many cowhands have only the clothes on their back. They are drifters, gamblers, and present-oriented spendthrifts. But it is the cowboy's very lack of foresight and law his heedlessness of responsibility, which makes him a folk hero today. The modern mind is existentialist. It is concerned with the moment, not the future. It despises thrift, patience, and enterprise. John Cage has recommended to other musicians and composers that the proper approach to writing must be a, quote, purposeful purposelessness, unquote. The arts work towards a breakdown of rational control 
purpose, and meaning. Rob Grillet has called for the end of the, quote, universe of signification, unquote. In example, the world of meaning in the arts so that we have, according to Eric Kaler, the jeopardy of language itself and the triumph of incoherence. We have, he states, quote, the outspoken attempt to produce incoherence. What these movements ultimately arrive at, what in the end they want to accomplish is the total destruction of coherence, and with it, the deliberate, and that means the conscious destruction of consciousness, unquote. Eric Kaler, The Disintegration of Form in the Arts, page 95F, New York, Braziller, 1967. Returning to the cowboy, he is a natural rather than a philosophical existentialist, and as a result, he is a television hero. On television, the cowboy is naturally not a married man. Marriage means responsibility. It means the necessity of thinking about someone other than yourself. Moreover, the television and movie cowboy rarely solves problems. His answer is the gun. Thus, his, quote, solution, unquote, is in effect war and revolution, not a constructive development. The cowboy hero wipes out problems. He does not solve them. Having left death and destruction in his wake, dead men, rooms turned into a shambles, and grieving people, he gets on his horse and rides on. There is no thought of reconstruction. The future-oriented upper-class man knows that every act today has implications for tomorrow. His actions are aspects of a planned life, and he is highly conscious of what the future may bring. As a result, his actions are responsible and future-oriented. He, quote, counts the cost, unquote, as a religious duty, because Jesus Christ requires it of his followers, Luke 14, 27-33. To count the cost means to recognize that we live in God's universe of law and that ideas and actions alike have consequences. Any man who fails to count the cost is a fool and a lower-class mind, whatever his wealth or social position. A generation which is lower-class in outlook will seek lower-class heroes, and as a result, the cowboy is its folk hero. Another kind of person widely idealized in our time is the Polynesian. From Melville's day to the present, the Polynesian has been to many people a citizen of paradise, a person living in a beautiful sexual heaven where there is neither work, responsibility, nor consequence, only erotic and dreamlike native girls to titillate their idiot imagination. Dr. Robert C. Suggs, anthropologist, has recorded some data about Polynesian orgies. He regards them as a wonderful people. Quote, Much of the really heavy drinking done by the adults was done in the spirit of contest to see who could manage to drink under the table the husbands of the most accessible females and still remain conscious enough to possess the victor's prize. Many such contests soon became sexual orgies with discretion and custom thrown completely to the winds. Wives took lovers right beside their dead drunk husbands. Young boys lured women of their mother's generation into the bush. And even incest prohibitions were transgressed. Unquote. Robert C. Suggs, The Hidden World of Polynesia, 
page 110, New York, Mentor 1962-1965. through 1965. This is the appeal of Polynesia to the lower class mind. And not only hippies, but young executives are busy trying to turn the Western world into a new Polynesia. The lower class mind is not future oriented because it does not recognize that it lives in a world of law. To the extent that any culture departs from biblical faith, to that extent it becomes lower class because it denies God's sovereign counsel and law and it is therefore not future-oriented. Only to the extent that man recognizes that the world is under God's law does he at every point then plan and act in terms of that law. Lower-class religion, economics, politics, and all things else deny that any absolute law exists which can bind man. Man must move in terms of the moment and human need according to these humanists instead of a future condition by God's law word, by supply and demand, by economic realities and basic laws, the future is seen as entirely made by man. Man makes his own law, his own future, and his own consequences, according to humanists, in radical contempt of any law alien to man. But when man strips the world of meaning, he also strips himself of meaning. This is very sharply apparent in the writing of archaeologist Jeffrey Bibby, looking for Dillman, New York, Knopf, 1969. Bibby gives an interesting account of a great ancient civilization, beginning about 3000 B.C. and dying about 1000 B.C., whose name was even unknown to us for 2400 years. In conclusion, after describing his work, Bibby wrote, and when one day it will all have been said and done when the last basketful of earth has been carried up from the diggings and the last word of the last report written, what will it all have mattered? That Dillman has emerged once more from the midst of oblivion, that we can cross the threshold which Uperi, king of Dillman, trod, look up at the fortress walls that guarded the emporium of all the Indies. What does it matter? Does it matter who the people were who in the dawn of our time opened up the trade routes from Melua to Macon, from Macon to Dillman, from Dillman to Sumer? For two and a half millennia, even the fact that they had been was forgotten, and the world went on happily enough, unaware that it was unaware. Among all the lost volumes of human history, what is one lost chapter more or less. They are dead and gone, these merchant adventurers of another age, and neither the archaeologist trowel nor the pen of the chronicler can bring back the argosies that once sailed the blue waters of the Arabian Gulf. It can matter as little to them as it does to us, that now once more we know a little of their doings, a few of their names. Page 383. How long can research and science endure when the work men do has no meaning because the universe is for them meaningless? The sickness of the world of science and learning is this sickness of meaninglessness. Men whose lives are meaningless are incapable of making sound decisions. In fact, they postpone decision-making. Intelligent men making decisions 
because their future-oriented thinking calls for responsible actions. A crisis confronts them with live options, and they decide in terms of a planned evaluation of alternatives. The lower-class reaction to a crisis is to postpone decision in the hopes that the crisis will go away. He wants, quote, time, unquote, to solve what he is morally required to solve. The September 1970 IMF meetings answer to the world's economic and monetary crisis was to, quote, mark time, unquote. The lower class man floats with the current because he will not look beyond the moment. According to Solomon in Proverbs 16.22, Berkeley version, quote, Prudence is a fountain of life to its possessor, but folly is the chastisement of fools, unquote. The fool is the man who does not consider consequences. His mentality is lower class. Class is thus not a social issue, nor is it related to a social register. All too many whose names are in a social register are lower class descendants of upper class ancestors who now coast on an inherited name and wealth. Class is ultimately a religious matter. It is the recognition that the world is God's world and therefore under God's law. At every point we must therefore count the cost. We must be future-oriented, otherwise we are trash. Quote, Neither fit for the land, nor yet fit for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Unquote. Luke 14.35 History is God's handiwork. If man and nations do not reckon with the future under God, religiously, politically, economically, ecologically, and in every other way, they will wind up on the manure pile of history. Is that your destiny? Quote, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Unquote. Ephesians 5, 14 through 16. Calcine Report number 63, November 1970. We have been analyzing in our recent reports the meaning of upper class culture. An upper class is the future-oriented element in a society. The term upper class does not mean members of a social register. Such people are all too often lower class and present-oriented today. An upper class is made up of those who have a realistic and future-oriented perspective. Such people forego present pleasures in terms of future goals and plans. They plan and execute their affairs in terms of providing for a future for themselves and for society under God. An upper class provides the spiritual and material capitalization of a society. A lower class decapitalizes a culture. Because a lower class is present-oriented, it uses up inherited spiritual, intellectual, and economic capital without any realistic planning for tomorrow. The lower class man dreams about the future, the upper-class man works to bring it into being. The relationship of agriculture to class is a very important one. Farming and ranching require a certain amount of foresight 
in order to operate at least passably. Historically, the fact that the suppliers of food have been lower class has meant that food has been a chronic problem in world history, and most people have lived at the bare subsistence level. In England, under George III, an important change took place in agriculture. Britain, defeated by the American colonies and while apparently declining into insignificance as a power, actually began to revive and moved ahead to its greatest strength. The agricultural revolution was a basic aspect of this change. Agriculture had been a meager way of life for many people. Now lords and gentlemen saw their lands as fields of investment and as areas for skill and scientific management. The sandy soils of eastern England were made highly productive. Robert Bakewell defined a sheep as, quote, a machine for turning grass into mutton, unquote. As White notes, quote, nothing less than aristocratic patronage and resources could have achieved the transformation of agricultural organization and technique within the intensely conservative society of rural England at that time, unquote. Even King George III began to patronize agricultural reform and to be proud of the title, quote, Former George, unquote. R.J. White, The Age of George III, page 10F, New York, Walker, 1968. Some have bewailed this agricultural revolution. It forced many poor tenants off the land into the cities or to America. The half-starved tenants found work in the cities, and the Industrial Revolution had the manpower to move ahead. Those who bewail the conditions of the working class then forget that it was a major step upward for them economically. This continuing agricultural revolution has taken a major step forward in recent years. Especially since World War I, it is a fallacy of the lower class mind to see things in terms of numbers by counting noses. We are told by such people that half the labor force was on the farm in 1900. As recently as 1945, one-third of the U.S. population was on the farm. Now it is less than 10%, and especially with the move of the southern Negro into cities, it is dropping even lower. But does this mean the decline of agriculture and importance to the economy? In reality, fewer men are producing more food than ever before. According to Drucker, quote, The main engine of economic growth in the developed countries during the last 20 years has been agriculture. In all these countries, excepting only Russia and her European satellites, productivity on the farm has been increasing faster than in the manufacturing industries. Unquote. Peter F. Drucker the Age of Discontinuity, page 5, New York, Harper and Row, 1969. The steel industry is second to agriculture, quote, as a moving force behind our recent economic expansion, unquote. And steel faces problems because of obsolete methods. Railroads, electronics, plastics, and all other areas of industry lag behind agriculture where a smaller labor force has steadily increased its productivity. The American expansion, as well as the Japanese, has been possible because agricultural progress has supplied the country both with food 
and a released labor force to make industrial growth possible. Japan, with 60% of its population in farming at the end of World War II, now has barely 20% on the farm. Drucker feels that, quote, a period of very fast increase in farm productivity for the developed countries may be just ahead, unquote. Page 14. Agriculture has become in these countries, quote, the most technologically advanced and the most industrialized of basic industries, unquote. Page 111. The results of this development are important. In America, it has meant that less and less of man's income has had to go for food, since food has been produced more cheaply. In lower-class cultures, a major portion of a man's income has to go for enough food to survive. Today, the percentage of income spent for food is at an all-time low in the U.S., but with a larger consumption per person. This releases more money for other expenditures or for capitalization. As the Farm Journal has observed, quote, our amazing farm productivity is the chief reason for our national affluence. Americans can spend 86 cents out of every dollar of personal income for things other than food. Quote, in India, where they have only 40 cents left per dollar after buying food, the economy can't get off its back. Russia has a third of her workforce tied up producing food. She can marshal resources to go to the moon, but it's a disappointing trip to the Russian food store. Unquote. Moreover, quote, farmers are industry's best customer, using each year half as much steel as the automobile industry, enough rubber to put tires on 85% of the new cars, and more petroleum than any other industry. Farming employs more people than any other industry and is the biggest customer for the products of the nation's workers. In 1970, farmers' production expenditures will reach $40 billion, with another $32 billion of family spending, unquote. Farm Journal, October 1970, page 62. One reason why many businessmen who try to enter into agriculture lose heavily is because they are not accustomed to operating as carefully and narrowly as farmers and ranchers. What does all this mean? It means that while the urban culture of the cities of the Western world has declined from its status as the vanguard of civilization and become steadily an area of lower-class culture, the countryside, once a lower-class area, has become progressively middle and upper-class in character. There is a significant trend of once great industrial families to the land to successfully operating farms and ranches. The fact that agriculture has had proportionately fewer federal controls has stimulated its growth as an area of freedom and enterprise. This does not mean that the future of agriculture is assured. The California grape strike and the lettuce strike represents an important indicator. California wages are higher than those of other states, the strikers have asked for much more per hour than grape pickers of any caliber regularly make. The key lies elsewhere. The productivity of California has made it America's chief supplier of foods. In some products, 90 to 100 percent comes from California. 
in very many, over 50% of the nation's supply, is California grown. Control of California farm labor and the ability to strike and to stop the flow of that produce to market could, in a general strike, produce food rationing across the United States in a fairly short time. There is much more that can be said. The 1970 corn blight is straw in the wind. Abuse of the soil and its microorganisms, plus hybrid plants, more productive sometimes but also more vulnerable, has been a part of a growing present-oriented perspective which mines the soil rather than developing it. Oil companies and their subsidiaries are now major advertisers in farm periodicals, in one case an owner apparently, and their products have been heavily promoted. Short-term gains have been real. Long-term consequences are probably equally real and a potential threat. Rural conservatism has also eroded. The county and small-town church long remained Christian when its city branches were captured. Today, the dry rot of unbelief has infected the countryside. The man firmly grounded in Scripture is future-oriented. He is required by God to be responsible in all things, redeeming the very time of day as a religious duty. For many generations, Puritan children and many Americans were brought up on Isaac Watts' Divine and Moral Songs for Children. The first, third, and fourth stanzas of one of the best known read. How doth the little busy bee improve each shining hour and gather honey all the day from every opening flower? In works of labor or of skill I would be busy too for Satan finds some mischief still for idle hands to do. In books or work or healthful play, let my first years be passed, that I may give for every day some good account at last. I can recall while a student at the University of California at Berkeley hearing a degenerate professor of English read this poem as a prized joke, and the large class roared with laughter. A new generation, a lower class, had been born, and was being bred to despise work, thrift, and responsibility. We should not be surprised at what has happened in recent years. Each area of the upper-class mentality is being overwhelmed and destroyed by the lower class, of which the modern university is a major representative. A recent murder of an entire family had, as its excuse, only one fact. They were rich, and the murderer hated them for it. The murdered man had begun in very poor circumstances unlike the murderer. The lower class mentality is given to envy. Its action is basically twofold, to spend and to destroy. A lower class culture is thus easily led into revolution as its solution to problems. Our need today is for a new upper class. It cannot be created without a thorough and systematically biblical faith. Christian reconstruction begins with man, regenerated in Christ, and then proceeds to reordering the world. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus.
Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.